Something that looks great on paper is not always great for you. And the biggest thing is to really decouple the status and the expectations from what you want to do as a person, as a human being, as a professional. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate, and this is the Freelance Founders Podcast, where we talk to creatives who have designed their own careers. We're so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible journeys with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Freelance Founders Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with the brand executive, author of The Business of Aspiration, and one of Forbes, the world's most influential CMOs, Anna Angelic. Welcome, Anna. We're so thrilled to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Of course. To kick things off, Anna, we would love if you could give us a bit of a background of how you got started in your career. Oof, if I can remember, I know that I got a job after college in Belgrade immediately. Okay. And promptly left it to come to New York <laughs> to do my master's and then my PhD. So I was at the job maybe a month. It was not mm-hmm. freelance, it was full-time, which is even worse okay. because I'm like, yay. And But there's something you need to know. I just got accepted in master's <laughs> program. So I handed over the job to a friend of mine who was a great candidate and who stayed at that company for mm-hmm. 10 years or more. So that was my my first. And then when in New York, my first freelance thing was at the Committee to Protect Journalists between my first and second year of my master's. And that was, I mean, that was like serious because I would have like these Albanian journalists or Lithuanian mm-hmm. and they're like, you know, they're like, we don't have freedom of expression and this is what happened and someone was attacked and... You know, so we were writing um, reports about the freedom of press around the world. So that was kind of very inspiring. So interesting. So I want to get into your career path because you have such an impressive career. You've been the chief brand officer for Rebecca Minkoff and Banana Republic. You've been the CMO for multiple companies. I would love to know first, like, what made you decide to go off on your own and become a brand executive and, and write your book and start consulting? Well, I mean, I've always been consulting. I, this is not at all the first or the last time. It's basically the way that I structured my career is because I spent so much time in academia, getting a PhD and also working mm-hmm. at the same time. It was always like, how do you keep going forward? And how do you keep getting yourself inspired and how do you find the best environment that you're going to contribute to, but also that is going to contribute to your own career growth? So I do think that there are multiple paradigms right now. There is this very 20th century, you spend 27 years at the same company, you know, you get gold watch or whatever you get, stock plan and so on, you know, like I'm sure there are fantastic benefits. So that's very, you know, career one career path. But what we're seeing more is that people really are taking their own careers into their hands. When you look at millennials, when you look at Gen Z, it's basically 
building your own skill set and whichever environment provides you the best opportunity for that. So I think there is a shift in power from corporations to individuals that has been going on for quite some time now because you see like a try the best talent doesn't basically work for anyone if you look around. And that's mm-hmm. why we have a creator economy now when that can be monetized in a way that has never been able to be monetized before. But I know that my most talented friends, they either work for themselves or small groups of like-minded people. Right. No, it's definitely a time right now where the creative economy is just really driving a force, you know, with the power of social media and the power of that you have all these creators now and brands are hiring those creators to create content for them and gain more exposure for their own brands. So it's a very interesting time, I feel like, for for the creative industry and also for the individual that is trying to create their own skill set, as you, as you mentioned. Now that you are like currently really growing and developing your own skill set and you're looking forward and really developing your own career, who are some of those big influential brands or dream clients of yours? Honestly, like I look at it more from the work perspective is like how exciting is the work, how exciting and inspiring and lovely are people doing that work. I think it's very limiting to say, oh, I'm just going to work for the Fortune 500 brands or something like that, because that may not be at the end of the day, the, the work that a person enjoys the most. Right. And it's not just enjoying, it's like, what is the right compensation? So what is good for your portfolio? Where do you want to, what do you want to do next? What you haven't done and you want to do, or is there just something that you love and you want to do more of? And this is building upon your first question as well, which is basically that Hollywood model of talent is, what has been mentioned frequently in where the creator economy is, where the top talent is assembled together on a specific assignment, mm-hmm. a movie, a TV series or so. So in that sense, it's like orchestrating different individual talent to deliver the best possible product. And there was a studio system that was stuck with actors that were like there for, you know, a million years, you know, and that maybe directors, maybe writers, and they did not have the the best talent. And then when that sort of broke off, you then have more fair compensation for the talent and you have a bigger choice for, for the studio. So I think that is what is happening in the rest of the of the economy obviously there are like challenges in coordination and all of that and then searching costs and and that in a sense how do you orchestrate all of it how much time and money does it cost but at the end of the day you end up with a much much more talented group of people than what you inherit do you feel like especially now with gen z it's not like you apply for a job it's like a lot of them are creating their own career and career path, what would be your like biggest tip for like the younger generation getting to the point where you are? What would be your tip if you could go back in time and say, I wish I would have done things differently? I don't look like that. So I, I'm like, sorry to disappoint okay. younger generation, no, but it's, it's more like we, like there needs to be confidence 
in each of us that we did did we made the best possible decision with the information we had available at that time right. and in that specific context and circumstances. It's much easier to look back and be like, oh, well, the thing is, you didn't know what you know now. And we can't see the future and we should not spend time analyzing the, the, the past. So the best thing is to really have that confidence to make the best decisions in the present and to take into account as much information as, as possible. But then also not just information, but also gut feeling is important, emotion is important, reaction. Because something that looks great on paper is not always great for you. And the biggest thing is to really decouple the status and the expectations from what you want to do as a person, as a human being, as a professional. So you may Mm -hmm. think, oh, I really need to take this big job because that's the expectation. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the day, the only expectation you need to meet are your own. I really love that because I feel like there have been many occasions When I was full-time changing career paths or changing jobs, but then also going on my own and freelancing and starting my own company, where you're completely right, the expectation is very different from the reality of it. And it definitely, I think a lot of people tend to rely on their gut and it's sometimes people go against it, but the times that I have gone against my gut, it's never worked out. And so I do completely agree with with that statement of like being in the present, I always take meetings with people. Like if there's, if somebody came to me with a job opportunity or a a project opportunity, I always like to meet them in person or on a phone call, because I think a lot of it is the way that people describe it. And the questions you can ask is very telling of what type of role it will be or what type of project it will be. And it gives you a little bit more insight and for you to kind of tune into yourself seeing like, is this what I really want to do? Am I able to meet their expectations, but also are they able to meet my expectations in the project and in that position? I would love to hear a little bit more about your PhD in uh, sociology and what made you decide to go back and get your master's and your PhD? I didn't work for a long time before I joined when I did my master's and when I did master's I kind of like was in the zone you know so I just continued Mm -hmm. on 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 doing PhD then but then obviously when I finished classes I, I started working as well so the motivation was basically knowledge and gaining a better understanding of sociology of innovation sociology of technology and also behavioral economics and kind of combination of those areas that is very useful for 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 branding and brand strategy and evolution of brand strategy understanding of consumer behavior understanding of marketing and how to do the marketing that is not traditional marketing but that is adaptive right. to new technologies that are coming very that came very quickly because when you think about it, as I was finishing up, I was on Facebook in 2006 because I was still, at, I was at school. So mm-hmm. I have EDU address. From that period to say two years later, it became a commercial opportunity all of a sudden. And the YouTube, all of a sudden, f- people figured out that they can, brands figured out they can put 
ads on YouTube. And that was the great shift between mm-hmm. having mass media channels and having one way to build a brand to really looking at how technology, what values does technology have designed into it? How trends now spread through society, how we are influenced by others and how we influence others. How do we now make the decisions when we have all these different connections that did not exist before? So that was my motivation and that turned out to be a really good bet. I would say so. Freelance Founders is more than just this podcast. It's a thriving members-only community and resource hub for the top creative and marketing freelancers from around the world. Our digital platform acts as a home base to freelancers across 49 cities, 13 countries, and counting. As a member, you get access to like-minded individuals, exclusive freelance jobs, professional development workshops, a library of resources, and invites to exclusive in-person events, all available wherever you are. One member even said, if it weren't for freelance founders, I would have quit freelancing. This community has introduced me to countless creatives, helped me increase my rates and find lots of new jobs. Apply by April 1st to get access to our spring cohort. I think it's incredible what I've read from your newsletters and your book. And I just think it's a very interesting perspective that's not fully always addressed or focused upon. And it's you know, especially the consumer behavior side of things, because that drives a lot of the industry and a lot of different markets. I would love to touch upon your book, Business of Aspiration. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the book was conceived as uh, how to capture the changes in how people spend their time and money and what mm-hmm. they value and how they make shopping decisions, basically, and what kind of economy is created around that when the core of, when you know that brands are in the business of aspiration, that means they are creating aspiration. They're saying, hey, if you buy this, you're going to be like younger, smarter, more beautiful, you know, feel better about yourself and so on, better status. So when you look at that, what is aspirational now versus what was aspirational before, going back to how trends spread from upper class to lower classes and what even what luxury was then and what luxury is now, how did those meanings change? Like when you had like luxury, oh, we have something really expensive and now it's like luxury of time and health and space and you know experiences and transformation and spiritual growth and so on so these are all those shifts that that happen that impact tangibly economy that tangibly impact brand strategy that tangibly impact how you think about social influence how do you define taste and how do you capitalize on all those understandings of how aspiration economy works knowing that we aspire now to display our taste, our knowledge, our insider status, our belonging to a community more than just accumulating things. Because after Zara came in and H&M, they're knocking off all those designs. Anyone can have Gucci, 
right. if you have enough money to pay for it. But not everyone can have a vintage Gucci from 1970s and know that that was collection designed by XYZ before mm-hmm. uh, Patrizia Gucci killed Maurizio. You know, like there, there is that story that we are now buying. Right, and that right. is what we are now, we are collecting items that, that have a story associated with them more and more when you look at the rise of secondary marketplaces. For example, they're projected to rise at 70 billion. And all of a sudden, that's kind of like, well, that's really a lot compared to fast fashion that is going to be at 30. So when you think about it, that's a giant shift in consumer behavior and brands are not reacting fast enough. So that's what that Mm -hmm. is what the book is about, how to get brands. What is the strategy for brands to capture those shifts? I really could have used your book when I wrote my thesis back in 2011. I did my thesis around consumer behavior within the luxury market. This would have been really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) As Vigudi said, you acted on information that you had. Exactly. 1000%. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, but also you're so right. When I'm speaking to clients within the fashion space and we're talking about consumer behavior and brands see other brands doing these types of quick changes and quick movements and something that you spoke about, the macro to the micro and how brands are entering that Web3 space right now and the NFT space. And it's it's interesting because you have these very large heritage brands that, you know, as you mentioned, if they have something that people want to invest in or buy, you see all these different types of brands that might not have that product that are fast fashion that people buy quickly, but then they're fine getting rid of it three months later or next season because it's no longer in. But with those more coveted pieces that are collector items and authentic, those are what people are still going after. That's incredible. The book is amazing. Everybody should go buy it and read it. (laughs) And we'll include this in the show notes as well so people can go ahead and click it directly. I also want to talk about your involvement in Dematerialized and the NFT space. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more how you're an advisor to Dematerialized and and how you got involved in that? I met Karina Nobbs, uh, mm-hmm. co-founder, two years ago at Fashion Tech Berlin. But obviously, we knew each other from um, Rachel Arthur's Fashmesh uh, group virtual, like o- online. It was before Karina founded Dematerialized, and she was always at the at, at the forefront of fashion and and technology. And I know that she just got off the project with Selfridges at that time. It was like a virtual shop and how you select different items and what you can buy and how does this new environment looks like when there are no physical products on display. And she was clearly like ahead of her time, which is now what mm-hmm. we are we are talking about. So when they asked me, Marjorie, who I recently met, uh, who is also founder of uh, Luxo, the blockchain, for luxury mm-hmm. blockchain. So when they asked me to be part of their advisory group for brand and, and, and culture, it was obviously something that um, was very appealing, even though it was, again, it was the beginning of last year, which means it was just before the NFTs ex- exploded, before people sold 
are before Sotheby's and Christie's mm-hmm. got into the game. And when we mm-hmm. all start that unbelievable acceleration that happened in the second part of the last year. So it was more of um, women helping women and all getting together and getting your different experiences and expertises together. And that was just, you don't know where it's going to take you, you know, even if you're not Mm -hmm. familiar with something which I was not at that time, it was still a good thing to do. And Mm -hmm. then it turned Mm -hmm. out amazing thing to do. I'm not going to lie. I spent a a fair amount of time on the website earlier this week, and I really enjoy, and it's helpful for those that aren't well-versed in the NFT or Web3 space. I'm slowly really trying to understand it in the best way. But it really does a great job breaking down what you can do with these NFTs and how you can interact with it. Because I think for some people, it's really hard because it's not a physical thing. It's hard for people to really grasp what it is and how you can interact with it and engage with it. So I do want to say that I thought the website is awesome to be able to explore and potentially buy an NFT and be part of that culture. And so I just want to say, I really, really enjoyed being on the website and interacting. It's so crazy because it's created such a different hype around tech and fashion or just tech and art, tech and music. And it's really interesting to see that space grow very quickly. And you see the lines to get into stores when product is dropping. It's always been that way too, you know, online retailers dropping specific merchandise and product, but now with to see it in very much in the tech focused space with all these different types of creative industries, it's just really interesting to see. And I just loved how well dematerialized really ex- broke it down for those who are new to that space. Absolutely. And I mean, what is really uh, differentiating uh, Karina and Marjorie is they they walk the walk. They have been working in that space for a really long time. And it's not like, oh, this is the hype, let's jump on it. There is a true dedication to sustainability in fashion. There is a true dedication to innovation, to pioneering things and to transforming the industry for, for, for the better, both in terms of education and in terms of for brands and consumers and giving opportunities for brands to keep their their sort of commitment to newness and innovation and mm-hmm. and being close to customers going so they're a real deal and I do recommend dematerialized uh, pay attention to what they're doing they uh, they really are doing a great job and uh, they really have unbelievable educational component mm-hmm. and dedication to improving the state of fashion that's great So my last question for you is, everybody measures success in different ways. What does success mean to you and how do you measure it for yourself? Well, it's intersection of of different things. It's obviously money is a big thing. And like, don't ever say that you don't work for money because don't work for free, like work for money and work for a lot of money. So money is obviously unbelievably important. Mm-hmm. This is not one to three. It's not priorities, but all those components need to be met at the same time. Work with great people. Any and each one of us can work wherever we want. Choose 
people you like. You're spending a lot of time with them. And that's not trivial. At the beginning of your career, you may get along with anyone, but as higher you get, it becomes harder and harder and harder. So find your crew. And then the third one, obviously make sure that that's fulfilling and that it interests you. You spend a lot of time doing it. So make sure that you're interested in it. Don't, don't mail it in, you know? You do want to sort of unlock that, that motivation in you, self-motivation. Otherwise, really? go work at a corporation and then they'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Let's see how I, much you like that. <laughs> exactly. I completely agree. I come from the the era of like free internships. So it took a while for me to get to be okay with being like, you have to pay me to do this. <laughs> I think money was the biggest driver when I first went freelance or went off on my own to consult. But then obviously now it's like working with people who I enjoy working with, but also our values match and also really making sure that you enjoy what you're doing. Because for me, I'm like, if I don't like what I'm doing, why am I doing it? And it also makes, like you said, you might as well go work someplace that like doesn't give you that opportunity to really develop your own skill and you have to stay in one lane. Thank you for listening to my chat with Anna Angelic. You can find out more about Anna by visiting her website at angelica.com and be sure to sign up for her newsletter, The Sociology of Business. To learn more about freelance founders, head over to our website, freelancefounders.com and follow us on Instagram at freelancefounders. We hope you'll share, subscribe, rate, and review the Freelance Founders Podcast, which is available for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much and have a great day.